Well, today we finish up our series on living in grace, counseling the word. And it's a series that is aimed to look at some very important passages that offer encouragement and counsel to Christians struggling along in our Christian lives. And it's been a prayer of mine that we not only be ministered to from these Bible passages, but then also we learn how to minister to other people using them. And it is the topic of ministering to others that we end this series on. So I invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. If you're using one of the black Bibles in front of you, you can be found on page 964. 964 on those black Bibles there right in front of you. 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. In this passage, Paul aims to build up the church, to see them comforted in Christ. And uh, in this section, what's interesting is the way in which he goes about doing that. He shares from a great vulnerability. He shares from his struggles and from his own weaknesses. And so from this passage, I hope you see that in your own weakness, I hope you see that it provides you a great opportunity to minister to the weak. And all the while boasting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll go ahead and read that section right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 uh, to 7, actually. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Three points from today's sermon. Point number one, God comforts us in our weakness. God comforts us in our weakness. Point number two, God then calls us to comfort others in their weakness. God calls us to comfort others in their weakness. And then point number three, this all requires us to comfort others from our weakness. It requires us to comfort others from our weakness. Let's look first at the fact that God comforts us in our weakness. And uh, Paul here, he is determined that we understand this uh, from the very beginning of our passage. You can look there at verses 3 and 4. And here he holds out to the Corinthian church this God who consoles and comforts him in his own affliction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of our all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. So clearly, affliction is on his mind. He's going through trials and tribulations. I mean, that's sort of like the big umbrella of what's going on. But then in verses 8 to 11, we understand what specifically is going on. Look, go ahead and look there. 2 Corinthians 1, 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
Now, while Paul mentions that this suffering took place in the Roman province of Asia, where Ephesus was the capital, he doesn't explicitly mention what happened. But nevertheless, we know that it is bad, really bad. I mean, the burden, he says, is unbearable. We see that in the passage there. It is simply beyond their strength. So you can imagine, like, the trials and tribulations are rising up so high that he feels like they're rising over his head and he is beyond it is beyond his own strength beyond his ability so much so that he once again despairs of life itself paul is so human like us in physical suffering we know that he went through persecution we also know that he experienced physical illness we also know that he experienced great anxiety for the churches that he had started by God's grace and all at the command of Jesus. But we know that he is so human. I mean, along with physical suffering comes the suffering of the soul. He describes it here as despair of life itself. You know, once again, so much so that he sees that the only thing left to do is to surrender to death. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5, he describes it as the, he describes his affliction at every turn. Affliction at every turn. And then he goes on to say, fighting without, so clearly fighting with others, he's being persecuted. And then, fear within. Physical suffering, along with that comes the turmoil of the soul, the suffering of the soul. And this is vulnerability, it's, it's weakness that we don't often expect to come from the souls of the strong, Right? We expect the souls of the spiritual to be ever so strong and not to be acknowledging these types of things or even experiencing these things. But yet here it is in all of its nakedness, in all of its human weakness. And thank God that the Bible presents the reality that some of us face. You know, Our situation is simply beyond us in the trials and temptations that even some of you guys know even right now. <clears throat> Think of uh, Moses' despair. Moses felt incompetent to lead Israel, and so he goes to God and says, Surely I can't do this. Surely you made a mistake. And he feels, I think, they're overburdened, that the situation has overtaken him. You can think of the prophet Elijah, who in one moment is used of God to stand against 400 false prophets that follow idolatry, and God shows his, his power through Elijah in that, and then in the next, First Corinthians, First Kings 19. He is quaking in fear because Queen Jezebel wants to kill him. Right? God uses him to defeat 400 prophets of Baal, the false god there. But then he's quaking at one Queen Jezebel who so clearly denies God. And he despairs. He walks all day through the desert and says, just kill me now. And you think of David who felt overtaken by sin. And we read a, a few different psalms there that, that show so clearly that David felt as if he had been overtaken. You know, some of us can identify with this despair, the ever-advancing hopelessness, where circumstances without and then fear within strips us of all courage, so much so that life for the living is eclipsed. You know, you don't need to have experienced the same persecutions like Paul, the mob violence. False accusations, the imprisonments, the stonings, laboring to serve the church. This is how he describes it in St. Corinthians. Sleepless nights in hunger and thirst without food in the cold and exposed to the elements. 
You don't need to experience those particular sufferings and afflictions to know the turmoil of the soul, the suffering of the soul. But the Bible, thank God, does not hide the fact that this is part of what living in a sinful world is like. I mean, this is what exactly what Oscar mentioned before he read the scripture passage there. This is part of what it looks like for the Christian to be saved, but yet awaiting the final salvation where God is coming to the rescue, finally. This is what it looks like for the Christian to await God to complete the good work that he began in us. And at times we feel like there is no way out. It's interesting in regards to there being no way out. It's interesting you could take this passage and then you could take the other passage that we've looked at in 1 Corinthians 10.13 and say like, what exactly is going on here? Because 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. He goes on and says, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way out. So how exactly do we make sense of this? Because clearly Paul is saying that there's a situation that has arisen so much that there's nothing left to do but surrender to the sentence of death. How do we make that reconcile with God is faithful, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. And Paul's using those many of the same words there to say that this is an unbearable situation. Well, by God, in God's kindness, in God's kindness, 2 Corinthians 1, or at least the, the, the descriptions of what is going on in 2 Corinthians 1, and actually in 2 Corinthians all of it, all of the trials and tribulations, it is an example proving the truth of 1 Corinthians 10.13. It proves the truth of 1 Corinthians 10.13. So we sometimes feel like there is no way out. We may despair for a bit. But Paul knows that with the temptation that he experiences, with the trial that he's in, God always provides a way out. Even when he feels like there is nothing left to do but surrender to the sentence of death. This is what's going on with Paul. He's being weaned from the world and weaned from himself and once again to Christ and his truth. If you look there at 2 Corinthians 1, 9, you see how he received comfort. He feels the sentence of death, but yet he feels comforted by God, because God is the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies. Here's his way out. You know, to await, what is the way to endure up under trial? Verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but... That was to make us rely not on ourselves, so being weaned from himself and from the world, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. He knows that in the midst of the trial and tribulation, the affliction that he experienced in Asia, there's nothing left to do but surrender to the sentence of death. And then along comes God with the temptation. He will also provide a way out. And the way out is God's very own faithfulness to raise the dead. Now, certainly this comfort is probably not what many of us would find comforting. There's no deliverance out of the immediate situation, at least uh, that he is hoping in. His ultimate deliverance comes after he's already dead. But nevertheless, this is a word of comfort given according to God's faithfulness. Indeed, he is the God who raises the dead. And so Paul says, nevertheless, even though I face a death sentence, I trust in the faithfulness of God. He who delivered us will deliver us again. 
So there you see that Paul's embracing this truth of who God is. That's the comfort of God. That's the way out, laying hold of Jesus and all of his glories in that specific situation. This is why in the beginning of the passage, Paul's eyes are not fixed on the hopelessness that he's in, but fixed on God and more specifically the God who comforts. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. These are such tender-hearted descriptions of God, aren't they? Absolutely amazing to describe this God that we often don't understand. He is the God who is described as possessing the character of being merciful. You know, he's a father of mercies. I think there you can also say that, you know, he sires mercies all over the place. Mercies, mercies, mercies everywhere. He populates the world with his merciful actions. He's also the God of compassion, the God of all comfort. Not that, the, that he is a God of your ease, you know, so you can be free from responsibility. No, he's the God who comforts and consoles at every step of the way for the Christian. These descriptions convey the idea that God is ever ready to console with every possible consolation. Ever ready to console with every possible consolation. He's just beckoning us right now to draw from him as he has every possible consolation. This is your heavenly father if you're a Christian. If you have turned from your sin and embraced Jesus Christ, this is your father in heaven. He who administers every type of heavenly comfort to meet every earthly affliction. For all of his people going from this earth to heaven. So I get the picture that God is the God of all comforts. He's over his massive fleet of ambulances, stocked with every kind of concoction of heavenly comfort. And in our day of trouble, according to Psalm 50, verse 15, it says there, if we call upon him, he will deliver us. He never misses a call, an emergency call. He never fails. Someone here recently got their house broken into. They called the cops, and uh, they waited, well, well, I think it was something like months and months for the cops to come, to take fingerprints. But this God is not like them, the earthly governments. He never fails, never misses a call. And through the Spirit, God applies the balm of salvation, which always strengthens and always enlivens. God is ever ready to console with every possible consolation. And so even in this sort of cycle of affliction and then comfort, we see God's preserving grace that we spoke about last week. His preserving grace. We see it operating upon the Christian where the Christian can find help in his or her time of need. Praise God that those whom God calls by his grace are met with his grace in every situation. Those whom God calls by his grace are met by his grace in every possible situation. So take Paul, for example. Uh, God had called Paul to himself. God had saved him from his sin. God had called him to live a life worthy of his name. And God had even called him to suffer for the sake of Jesus. Paul is called by God's grace, right? Saved, drawn, given the ministry, but then he's also met by God's grace in every situation. He despairs of death. He feels the sentence of death. And so God meets him with his divine grace. 
for that particular situation. Of course he does this. Of course the Father does this. He calls his saints here on earth to go towards him in heaven. And so in every step of the way, in every affliction, he sends out heavenly divine mercies to meet us in our time of need so that we might taste the glories of heaven now and long for it all the more with every step of the way. We can also look to Jesus Christ and we see God's preserving and comforting grace. Christ, of course, experienced earthly affliction, yet God had pledged himself comfort and grace. While God intended for Jesus to experience trials in the desert, if you remember there in Matthew chapter 4, God gave Jesus the word of God, which which Jesus hid in his heart to resist temptation as he is resisting the devil, quoting the book of Deuteronomy. And then in resisting Satan after that temptation for 40 days, God does not abandon him, but yet he sends his divine ministers, the angels, to minister to Jesus Christ. Even though his life was lived in the shadow of the cross from birth to death, it is evident that Christ had a unique sense, an absolutely unique sense. If you go on and read John chapter 17, for example, Christ had had a unique sense of the abiding presence of God, the abiding presence of the love of God. So much so that as he is walking to the cross, he prays that just as you, Father, have loved me, so I pray that my love would be in them. And just as the abiding presence that I know from God, from you, Father, so we pray the abiding presence upon the people that I'm going to die for. And so that's what causes him to never waver or turn to the left or to the right, but to set his face like a stone to the cross. And then even as he is crucified, and then as he is as he was left to be buried, abandoned by his disciples there. Does God abandon him? No, but even in the grave, God sends out heavenly divine comfort. And with the power of heaven, he then raises his son to the dead and exalts him to the place that only Jesus can possess at the right hand of the Father, receiving the glory that Christ had, according to John 1, the glory that he had at the beginning with God. I mean, how encouraging is it for us to know that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Remember that. You see that there in the beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort is also our God. This is the Father who cares for all those united to his Son, and he does so just as he cares for his Son. And as God calls us to lay hold of Christ, as we've spoken about before, just as God calls us to lay hold of Christ, God stands ready to give us more of Christ. Because that's who he is. That's, this is the comfort that we receive. We belong to the faithful God, our sovereign God, who's over all things, whose goodness and love never fails. And those are the things that he pledges to us as Christians in affliction. The God of all comfort, Father of mercy. If you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, this is the God of the Bible. But then there's also another question, right? We ask the question like, who does that? Who draws near to his his rebels, those who have sinned against him, those who have plotted his overthrow in sin? According to Genesis uh, chapter 3, we know that's exactly what happens as God creates everything and man in relation to be in relationship with him but then yet man rebel men rebel against him 
And they claim the throne of God, determining what is good and what is wrong for themselves. And in effect, they become gods unto themselves. But who, what kind of king draws near to rebels to forgive them? We, we get this, that earthly kings draw near to rebels to destroy them and squash them. But here God draws near in Christ to save the rebels, but not just to declare them righteous, but to see them comforted at every single step of the way in affliction. That's a God of steadfast love and mercies. Surely he is a God of holiness and God of judgment, God of righteousness. But he is also a God of love and compassion and grace and mercies and a God of comfort. And we see this in Christ. In 1 Timothy 1.15 it says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. John 3.16, the very popular verse, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not, be, should not perish but have possessed eternal life. And then we know that this eternal life that he has set aside for those who repent and believe God preserves his people. He shields them. He guards them according to faith for an inheritance that will never perish or fade. God does this for our comfort, for our salvation, for those who believe in him. He is a loving God, full of grace, full of mercy, full of compassion. But here's the good news. <clears throat> Just as we see that God extends his comfort to us in Jesus Christ as he dies on the cross for sins, as only Jesus could as he lived a perfect life where we should have, and as he bears the wrath that what we should have received, he extends the salvation to you. He extends this comfort of forgiveness to you and this new relationship with him. Listen to Jesus that he says in uh, Matthew 11. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy burdened heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So friends, if you are not a believer, this rest here is for you. It extends for you this comfort here. If you would, turn from your sin and believe on him. What this requires, though, is that you look at what Christ has done and you embrace that work and lay down any works that you have on your own as if they could, in fact, earn for you salvation or add to your salvation. As Isaiah says, that even our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. And so when we lay these things down, we lay hold of the greatest work that could ever be seen, ever accomplished, that is Christ's death on the cross, where sins are wiped away and forgiveness is given. So to summarize, point number one, God is a God of comfort and he comforts us in all our affliction. But the question then is, why does God comfort us? Why does God comfort us? You know, in the Bible, I'm sure there are plenty of reasons. I know that there are plenty of reasons. But in 2 Corinthians 1.4, we are given one specific reason. And this is the reason that he wants the Corinthians to know. It says there that certainly God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy, the God of all comfort. Verse 4 who comforts us in all our affliction so that, this is the purpose, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This is point number two, the Christian call to comfort others in their weakness. Again, you see there the purpose statement is so that 
we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. I mean, what a, what a mission, huh? Your mission, Christian, is to multiply heavenly comforts to Christians going from this earthly land to heaven. Your job, Christian, is to multiply heavenly comforts to weary travelers on the road of faith. This means that the way we help others taste the heavenly glories now, here in this dark and depraved world, is to receive the comfort that we receive from God and then minister that same comfort to other people, multiplying heavenly comforts among the people of God so that we are in or amongst a people at rest in Christ, reminded of the forgiveness of Christ, the healing and restoration in Christ. You see how this works here as a church? We are comforted with the comfort of God so that we might extend that comfort to anybody in any affliction so that we might be a community that knows more and more and more about the very rest we have in Jesus. This is your ministry to others in this particular church, if you are a member of this church. Now, some may say, oh, but this is the Apostle Paul, and so it doesn't apply to us. Uh, But at the end of the book, though, in 2 Corinthians 13, you can just go ahead and turn over right there with me. Just as he started the book, so he ends the book there. It says there in verse 11 of chapter 13, he says, Finally, brothers, finally, I'm closing off the letter. Here we go. Rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another. Comfort one another. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, Encourage the weak. He's speaking to everybody there, Paul writes to the Thessalonian Christians. So this is your ministry. The question is, will you take it up? Will you, Christian, take it up? You know, there's a number of things that keep us from fulfilling this ministry. First, there is the thinking that the only ones who minister are those who have a pulpit ministry, those who minister from the pulpit. But this is completely wrong, completely wrong. Already we saw that Paul commands the Christians to comfort one another. Here's another verse, Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Those are the formal positions of ministry. But for what purpose does he give them? It is to equip the saints. That's you guys for the work of the ministry. For building up the body of Christ. That's you. For the work of the ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. So even though you may not have a ministry of the pulpit. You have a ministry in the pew, so to speak. A ministry in the pew. That's For those of you who are not familiar with pews, that's what you're sitting on right here. I can't stress this enough, this aspect of the ministry of the pew. Because along with it comes all sorts of wonderful ministry opportunities. This is why we encourage regular attendance. Regular attendance, both in the morning service and in the evening service. So you might be asking, like, why in the world is attendance even important? Well, it's because when you get here early to greet others in the pew, to get to know them, to take genuine interest in their lives and their afflictions and their sufferings, you you have the opportunity to extend heavenly mercies and heavenly comforts to them. Your own brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. It provides you opportunities to invite people over to your homes where you can have further biblical conversation about uh, who these people are. 
in order to do them spiritual good. So let me encourage you to begin moving towards picking up your ministry of the pew, your ministry of multiplying heavenly comforts to, to weary earthly travelers. So after this sermon is over, after the service is over, go find someone you don't know so well and introduce yourself to them. Go and talk about them. Just, you know, resist talking about Steph Curry and the Warriors. And talk to them about how this particular word... You don't even have to talk about how this particular sermon is encouraging you. You know, if you don't find it helpful, just talk about how the word of 2 Corinthians 1 has been helpful to you right after the service is over. And just encourage them. Who knows? Maybe they'll encourage you back as well. And then pray that these relationships would continue to develop as you exercise your ministry in the pew. Other people don't take up this ministry because they think, you know, I am a sinner. Surely I can't fulfill this ministry. I'm a sinner. Well, you know what? If you are living in unrepentant sin, that is, if you are living in a sin that you refuse to turn away from, then I say, well, yeah, okay, let's give that opportunity to somebody else and have them minister to you. So say, hey, I need ministry of the people. You help me. Um, you, you at this point in time don't need to concentrate on laying hold of the ministry of the pew necessarily you need to concentrate on laying hold of christ through repentance and faith you yourselves need to focus on receiving divine comfort that is offered in the gospel of jesus christ so you know one can't comfort others with the comfort of god if you are unwilling to receive the comfort of god yourself seems pretty clear but friends if you are repenting of your sin no matter how sinful you may feel if you are continuing to fight to lay hold of Christ, then you, sinner, are perfect. Perfect for this ministry. Perfect for this ministry. I mean, God intended the weak to help the weak. We are Christians, after all, saved by grace, you know. So, in fact, salvation by grace alone allows for nothing else but for the weak to go on serving the weak. What other option is there for people who boast in the sufficiency of the cross who say that there is nothing that we can add to our salvation but for the weak to help the weak. I mean, all of us are in need of divine grace through Christ. And in doing so, as sinners saved by grace, we boast in the grace of Christ. Other people think that I am not equipped for the ministry of consolation. Maybe that's you. Maybe you think, well, you know what, I've never been in the person's situation. I don't know the particular afflictions that they're going for. I've never been married. So how can I comfort others who are married? Or, I've never been divorced. How can I help my friends who are wrestling with divorce, going through divorce? Or I don't watch pornography, so how can I help my friends who, don't, who watch pornography? Or whatever. And so you conclude that because you are lacking in common life experiences, you therefore have no confidence. But friends, do not buy it. That is garbage. I think this type of thinking is exactly what Satan wants us to think in order to bring this church to our knees in inactivity, or more so, to make us lie back in our lounge chairs in inactivity. To cut the legs out of our ministry of consolation. Just look at 2 Corinthians 1-4 again. Paul does not say that he comforts us. God comforts us only to leave us to counsel from our own experience and wisdom. The verse says there, God comforts us so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We receive heavenly comfort in order to minister that heavenly comfort. Not our present day experiences. 
So our ability to comfort, our wisdom to comfort, doesn't come from our shared experience here on earth. At least uh, the same going particularly to that specific trial. Wisdom and ability doesn't come from us. You are able to minister in this way because you yourself know the comfort of Christ. And if you, friend, know the comfort of Christ, you are equipped to handle this ministry. Now certainly we might think about wisdom and how we can exercise care and seek to develop awareness of a particular situation that we ourselves might not understand. But if we believe, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that the desires in us that give birth to sin are common to every man, then we're prepared. We are equipped. We understand Christ Jesus and his grace, and we claim it, and we need it, and we live by it. So we're, we're able to minister those same particular things. So friends, let me encourage you, prove you believe in the sufficiency of the word of God, the sufficiency of the grace of Christ by saying, yeah, okay, I may not understand fully about the uniqueness of this person's sins, but I know the sufficiency of the grace of Christ, I know the power of the word of God, and it is that that makes people wise unto salvation, so I minister divine wisdom and heavenly comforts. You have an opportunity to show the reality, that, the reality, the fact that no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man, which means you share in their depravity, you share in their similar sinful desires, and most importantly, you share in the fact that God's grace has found you, and so it finds all others. The only experience you have to share is not a life experience, but a grace experience. It's a wonderful thing that in trusting in Christ, we have something to offer in Christ. This is our call, and I pray that we take it up. Each and every one of us, sinners saved by grace, we are to minister His grace. There are so many who are afflicted. You guys realize this, that when we all come in here, there are so many who are afflicted in circumstances without fighting, without, and fear, and all sorts of other sins within and God intends the weary traveler to be receiving heavenly comforts from your brothers and sisters here in this pew. You yourself in this pew. So let me encourage you to take it up. Point number one, God comforts us in our weakness. Point number two, God calls us to comfort others in their weakness. And now point number three, this requires us to comfort from our weakness. This requires us Oftentimes, to comfort them from our weakness. Here we are talking about the manner in which we fulfill this ministry that we've been given. It is from weakness, from our affliction, from our struggles. And Paul again is our example here of ministering from a position of earthly weakness. He is not ashamed one bit about this. You realize that in our own afflictions and fears and our fighting, we might be so tempted underneath shame to not share the ways in which we are so deeply afflicted, pierced by difficulty. But Paul, he's not afraid. So then we got to ask the question, well, how exactly does he take up this ministry of comforting others without fear, but instead with boldness? I mean, just think again about all the stuff that he's actually sharing with us from 2 Corinthians 1. He shares this so freely and with urgency, it seems. The circumstance was absolutely unbearable. We don't, once again, we don't have to know his particular struggle to feel the affliction. We might, be, we might feel the affliction of being overwhelmed with our own personal sin. That doesn't seem to be what Paul's wrestling with. It seems more that he's wrestling with just circumstances and fear. 
But you might know affliction as well and feel like there is this unbearable burden that you carry. It is beyond your endurance. It is beyond life. And so you are so tempted to just resign in all the junk that you feel right now. Fighting without fear within. These are not admissions to be glanced over. So he says there in verse 6, if we are afflicted, <clears throat> which brings, brings along with it internal spiritual turmoil, he says, it's for you. He sees all the sufferings that he experiences, the earthly suffering that's then met with divine comfort. He says, it's for you. It's for your comfort. If we are comforted, if we receive spiritual consolation, it is for your comfort. <clears throat> if we are afflicted, it is for you. If we are comforted, it is for you. The very fact that he's sharing speaks of a certain vulnerability that he has towards here the Corinthian Christians. And then we can think of Jesus as well. <clears throat> in a certain respect, his ministry was lived all in weakness. Certainly not a weakness because he lacked strength, but a weakness that was characterized more by meekness because he, because he possessed all strength. You know, all, only the all-powerful can lay down power because he doesn't need to grasp after it. He already possesses it. And so that's what we see in Philippians 2. He leaves all his position of glory because he already owns it. He freely takes on the form of a servant and he dies on the cross. It was weakness that is confident, confident of the strength that he could take up at any point in time. A strength and dependence upon the power of God that would eventually raise him from the dead. And it was his strength and confidence that was the model for, I think, Paul. I think for the apostles and I think for us here today. I'm convinced that ministering to the weak in our weakness reflects Jesus' leadership. It reflects Paul's leadership. It is not a leading in human strength, but a leading in divine strength. It's a ministering in such a way that makes the strength of Christ and the grace of Christ and the comfort of Christ to be known and seen and recognized and embraced as all-powerful to the very ones we minister to. So here, this is just simply doing anything, anything possible in our ministry to exalt Jesus Christ. And so you see that there in 2 Corinthians 12. You know, there Paul is given this thorn in the flesh. You can turn there, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then what does he say? He doesn't grumble about it. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that, ultimate purpose, the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then... I am strong, and of course the implication there is strong in the grace of Christ. You see here, he's ministering out of weakness. He's bearing himself to the Corinthian church there. He's doing all things to exalt Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 9, 23 says, you know, basically don't boast in human strength, but boast in this, that you know God. 1 Samuel 16, when uh, Israel is going to be looking for a king, looking for King David, and God says... He says, uh, don't pay attention to the outward appearance, that is the physical strength, that is uh, all the things that the world counts as strong, uh, everything that the world would think a leader should be. And he says there, because God doesn't pay attention to what's on the outside, he pays attention to the heart, 
of course, is the heart that depends on God, a heart that exalts Jesus Christ. So you see how, here how ministering from weakness to the weak highlights nothing of your own but Christ. I mean, why go about weakness highlighting all the things that God doesn't care about? It makes no sense because, it, because we're not supposed to boast in those things anyways. But when we highlight the things that are worthy of boasting in, then God gets the glory and we are diminished. Christ then is exalted. I think we overall in general would agree with this. But we find it hard to do. So for the rest of the sermon here, I have a few encouragements as we seek to minister from weakness. First, ministering out of weakness requires openness to share about your own affliction, about your own weakness and frailty. Openness to share about your own affliction. Again, this applies whether or not whether you are going through persecution or fighting your own sin. Friends, as we seek to multiply heavenly comforts among God's people here at First Baptist, openness has great power, and I hope that you have already seen it begun to work here. As, go figure, the open and free confession of sin creates the environment of open and free confession of sin. It's so logical, and, and you yourselves, I hope, have already begun to see this. When you start talking about things openly, just in the normal course of the Christian life, asking for help, seeking counsel, all of a sudden the person on the other end begins to think like, whoa, you know, I can actually lay down my barriers and the walls that I've built up and confess just like you have? So the question is, why don't you go about sharing? And see, that too is a ministry of, uh, ministry of consolation and taking the initiative to do so that Many people feel as if it's too embarrassing. You know, we feel so ashamed over the turmoil and the affliction that we go through. Sometimes we'd rather protect ourselves for our own earthly comfort as opposed to give ourselves to the church's heavenly comfort. But some of you have begun to share. And I know this because you've shared these things with me. And I ask you, have you ever shared this with anybody? And you say, no, I have not. And friends, that is so exciting. And I pray that as you test the waters in your own timidity, in your own insecurity, wondering, you know, what's this person going to do? I pray that as you test those waters of living among a people saved by grace, I pray you see the comfort of Christ in the people who minister Christ. In the safety, in the consolation, in the trust, in the love. Now, without doubt, we don't do this perfectly. And if we are harsh or something like that or legalistic... It's, all, it's uh, up to us to rebuke one another and encourage one another to even go about the ministry of reconciliation with the same grace God has given us. But without doubt, and I know this from personal experience, it is safer amongst Christians than if you were to do this outside. And friends, I hope that you would take up your ministry and, and see more of this culture of openness and grace and you yourselves would move this church forward toward that end where you are free to live amongst a people openly who labor for your good instead of living amongst a people that for some reason you feel the need to impress. This is church of people saved by God's grace for the glory of God. The beginnings of openness is also exciting because ministry opportunities will indeed open up. You know, there are some here who have never been open 
Their lives are like bank vaults. No one's getting in. And uh, by you being open to confessing your sin and sharing life circumstances and seeking advice and help, you show the more timid folks, the more those who are more insecure than you are, what it looks like to live amongst the saved people. And the comfort you receive, you can actually start comforting others with. So let me encourage you to start and do so reminding yourselves of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is overtaking you. That is, except what is common to man, which should free us to go on and share all about our desires, certainly with wisdom, depending on who you're talking to, certainly with wisdom, but the same desires are in all of us. The second thing required to minister from weakness is confidence knowing that the gospel is your strength in weakness. What is required to minister from weakness? It is confidence knowing that the gospel is your strength in weakness. I say confidence because I'm sure some of you guys are saying, oh, you know, it's, I'm really scared to be open. It is threatening. But friends, if you know, if you know without a shadow of a doubt that you will be exposed before Jesus... And he certainly knows every sin that we've committed in the past and every sin that we're going to commit in the future. <laughs> and yet, Christ in love and holiness dies on the cross for my sins. He reconciles me to the Father all according to his love, grace, and mercy. And then he declares me righteous. And I look at you and say, what can you do to me? What can you do to me? Because God already knows everything about me. So I'm just going to lay it all out for your benefit. And even if you are uncomfortable... I'm going to help you trust in the grace of Jesus too, even in light of my own sin. So you see how there the person who's so confident in the grace of God is so free to share, so free to minister to the weak from our own weakness. I have a friend who is who was deeply entrenched and, and addicted to pornography. And he's a pastor, and he's a sin, it's a temptation that he still wrestles with. So he's made great progress, uh, and now he's, he's uh, established the proper accountability structures, and he's, he's grown in godliness. He's a godly man, and the church recognizes these things. Others, other elders recognize these things. Um, and we were at a pastor's luncheon, and somehow we got to talking about you know the culture, uh, and the culture and pornography and stuff like that, and pornography in general. And then in, in, a, in a flash of a moment, you know, while we're eating like pork and stuffing our faces at this pastor's conference. He, gets, he starts talking about things all personal. And he says, he starts talking about, man, last night I was wrestling. And you know what I had to do? I had to grab my remote control. I had to go to my other, friend's, my other friend who's a pastor. And I had to give him the remote control because when, I am in the, when I'm in the hotel rooms, it's just terrible. But when I'm apart from my wife, it's absolutely terrible. And then, like, you know, my gut reaction is like, oh, awkward. You know, eating my food here. <clears throat> you know, I got no problem talking about that one-on-one. -on -one, but, you know, here's a guy who's talking about it openly. And uh, this, uh, in the past, actually, <clears throat> when I shared a room with him at a different pastor's conference, he like the second line out of his mouth was, what's your struggle with pornography like, brother? And then, you know, we talked and uh, I asked him the same question and then he said the same thing, you know, it's, it's horrible for me in hotel room, they're glad you're with me and, uh, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, even though my gut reaction is a thing like, ooh, awkward, I thought, regardless if it's awkward or not, regardless if my culture doesn't do that, whatever, it showed that this is a brother who is confident in the gospel. This is a guy who rolls up to someone he barely knows and says, look, this is who I am. I need help, man. You help me. And, and I know, and he's able to say that because he understands that he is secure 
in Jesus Christ and in the cross of Christ that forgives him for his sins. Confident in the gospel, aware of his own sinfulness, and so therefore he's free to talk about it. Being confident in the gospel, knowing the love of God through the gospel. You see how for this instance there, in this, in this moment between me and my friend, it positions us, or positions him to want to see others grow in the gospel too and know that love and know that comfort as well. So when he's asking me like, so what's your struggle with pornography, brother? He's also asking like, so how can I care for you? That's just how he is. And because he's so confident, that allows him to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ, the ministry of consolation. He picks it up and he runs with it in all boldness, knowing exactly who he is, justified in Jesus Christ, righteous under the eyes of God because of the blood of Jesus. You realize here, friends, that there are many who are facing certain circumstances, wrestling with certain sins in this particular church. And God intends you to minister heavenly comfort, heavenly consolation to those wrestling. He intends you to be strengthening them in their faith. To say, yes, I too know the gospel. I am confident in the blood of Christ. And I want you to know that too. Regardless of how uncomfortable that may make you feel. Another thing, ministering out of weakness requires of the Christian. It requires risk of being misunderstood. Risk of being misunderstood regarding your weakness. And that's actually very much the, the situation that's going on in 2 Corinthians. There are these so-called super apostles that are looking at the sufferings of Paul. Uh, and they're sort of deriding him. They think, oh, you know, an apostle of God doesn't go through these types of things. They don't go through fear. And so the Corinthians are confused here. But Paul, he rolls up and says, no, I will boast in my weaknesses. You can, in fact, misunderstand me, but I know what's right before God. I know that God's grace is sufficient for me, that his power is made perfect in weakness, because I don't pay attention to the stuff that man pays attention to. I pay attention to the stuff that God pays attention to. The heart. That's humble before God. That's weak before God, as only the sinner can be, and is be and is willing to risk being misunderstood regarding our weakness. Sure, it takes time. I mean, after all, Paul, a lot of what Second Corinthians is is a clarification of what he's doing, why he's going through weakness, why he boasts in Jesus Christ. And so he's taking time to explain things. But friends, let me encourage you to take that risk as well. And see that multiplying heavenly comforts to weary, weary travelers is worth it. Why is that? Because once again, God's grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness and God will vindicate you. Even if that means he will do that after you are dead. That's a hope that we can have. It's a risk worth taking. Look at Jesus, for example. Has God yet fully vindicated our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Are people, not, are, are, are people still mocking Jesus Christ right now? Certainly he has vindicated his name amongst us, but certainly not amongst the world. But yet Christ trusts that one day God will make things right. And so he is free to take on the form of a servant, free to leave his place of glory where he alone could leave from, and free to die on the cross and to minister in weakness. And he says, look, if this is what it takes for my people to be rescued and to know divine heavenly comforts, then I will do that 
even if that means that I will finally be glorified or the whole uh, that I will be glorified amongst the whole entire earth amongst every people tribe and nation where one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Jesus is patiently waiting and so he calls us to as well well to conclude imagine being a church of Christians ready to multiply ready and eager to multiply comforts heavenly comforts to those weary of their earthly travelers where we would help the hopeless those sojourning and bring them into hope-filled longing and eager expectation for God to, in fact, complete what he has begun. This is the hope that Paul offers, a hope that he is sure about. If you look there in verse 7, notice what enables him to offer such hope. It's because he knows that together they share in the sufferings of Christ, which means they're going to share in the glories and comforts of Christ. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know as you share in our sufferings, as we collectively share in afflictions and in weakness, we collectively will share in the comforts of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are such a God that is eager to comfort us in all of our afflictions. Lord, we give you great praise. And so we say with Paul, Blessed are you, our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for being the Father of mercies. We know, Lord Jesus, that your Father, your, your mercies are new every single morning. And we know, Lord Jesus, that your comforts know no end. And so how awesome is it that you are ready and willing to comfort with every possible consolation. Father, we pray that in every single step, in every single turn of the Christian life, Lord, that we would embrace our own weakness and boast in the glories of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that out of that same weakness, we would have such a heart to want to see other people comforted and know the consolation of Christ. So, Lord, we pray that by the power of the Spirit, whose job it is to exalt Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray that the Spirit will be working in us as a church so that we would, in fact, be ministering to everybody here. Father, help us understand that our life is but a breath. And so we ought not waste it, but use it to see that other people know and grow in their relationships and the care and compassion that you extend to us here even right now. In your name we pray. Amen.